All right, we're going to go ahead and get started down here. So if everybody could uh, make their way to their seats. All right, so welcome to this uh, morning at um, Sunday School at Christ Bible Church. As always, we'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Are there any prayer requests we bring to the Lord this morning? We prayed for uh, Luke Henrich in the past. He has a brain tumor, works for Jersey Central Power and Light, the line, and I stand uh, from Canada this morning that... Uh, been having some seizures. So it's not a good time. He's undergoing treatment. Gotcha. Like, uh, I remember blessing that a couple months ago. They did about 10 months. Mm. And that was how many months ago? Huh? How many months ago was that? That was at least two months ago. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, Luke Patterson, his wife is uh, crazy. And uh, he has uh, two daughters, Jonathan and uh, Jenny. Gotcha. So it's a hard time for them. They're not believers. As far as I know, they, they do not know the gospel. Okay. I'll definitely remember that. Guess we will also remember the persecuted church. Remember our brethren, particularly in the Ukraine, in uh, Afghanistan, Myanmar, and other places that we may not be aware of. All right, if there's nothing else, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the coming together this time to study your word, Lord. We're just thankful for the grace and mercy you've extended to allow us to gather together as a people this morning, Lord. Uh, we're just uh, thankful for uh, your loving kindness towards us. We're thankful for your compassion and mercy towards your peace, people. Most of all, we're thankful for your justice, Lord, and the fact that you are a just judge, and we know that the just judge of the earth will do right. Lord, we just ask that uh, you remember Lou Patterson, Lord, um, that uh, he's dealing with a brain tumor, Lord, from what we understand the doctors have given him 10 months to, to live at most. And Lord, we know ultimately that um, man's days are fixed by you, not by the estimates of, of doctors or even if they are learned men, but... Um, Lord, we just would ask that uh, you would extend healing in that regard, that you would uh, remove that, if you so will. <clears throat> but if it is not to be so, Lord, most of all, we're, we're concerned for his soul. We just would ask that um, you would convince him of the gospel, Lord, that you would uh, send someone his way to provide the living word, Lord, and that you would uh, draw him to yourself 
in a saving manner so that he may know you in the free pardon of sin, so that even though you may not heal him of the, of the physical cancer or the spiritual cancer upon his soul, may be lifted so that he may live. And we'd also ask you remember the persecuted brethren this morning, Lord, in many parts of the world. Particularly, we ask a prayer for those in Ukraine, those in Afghanistan, those in Myanmar, those in other parts of the world, Lord, that have not been mentioned. We know there are many who are gathering in secret, who are gathering under the threat of persecution and the threat of death this morning. We just ask you to be with them this morning as well. We just ask you to be with the one that's going to deliver the message this morning, Lord, that it may be from your word and that it may be informed by the Spirit of God. And that uh, we would just ask that you would allow that to take place this morning, Lord, so that it's for the edification of the brethren, uh, for the upbuilding of the saints, or if not for the upbuilding, for the conviction of the saints for, for sins. And we just would ask that you would allow us to repent of our sins and to trust more strongly and faithfully in you. We most of all are thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, who is our faithful prophet, priest, and king. It is in his name and in his honor we pray and offer thanks this morning. In his precious name we pray. Amen. So some of you are aware that um, we did end our study of Mark 16 rather abruptly, or I guess the Gospel of Mark rather abruptly. And here before too long, uh, Damon is going to probably pick that back up. I know probably it seemed rather abrupt that you know we stopped at Mark 16.8 and then... Just uh, kind of went into Revelation. Seems like kind of a, a jump there. And that is intentional. Uh, that was due to a number of things that had to be worked through. And um, I'm going to try to help in that regard this morning. So we will not actually be in our curriculum this morning per se. Actually, we're going to be studying uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And the discussion, the topic of our discussion this morning will be on the topic of Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20. But we are going to approach these verses from a different angle this morning than what we normally would. Um, our discussion this morning is going to be what we might call a textual critical rather than an exegetical discussion in nature. And I know that probably sounds absolutely riveting. And we'll try to make it as um, painless as we possibly can. Uh, the purpose of our discussion is not so much here to exposit the text, but rather to examine the textual evidence for the text. Now, the reason for this is that these scriptures comprise two, one of two of the largest textual variants in the New Testament. If you have a study Bible this morning, you will likely see some sort of note indicating these verses as being a variant, not found in the oldest available manuscripts. If you have an NASB or an ESV Bible, these verses will be bracketed. If you have a KJV or an NKJV Bible, you will likely have a small note placed at the beginning of verse 9. I point this out first and foremost because this is a well-known and a well-documented fact, one that has been known for at least 500 years, going back as far as the Dutch scholar Desiderius Erasmus in the 16th century. And in fact, it can be traced back farther than that. The reading we find in our Bibles today is, in fact, one of several endings that are currently found in the extant manuscripts that we have. The ending we have come to know is recognized by a large body of scholarship to not be original to the text of Mark's Gospel. Now, that is a debatable position to take, and I'm not seeking to assert that as fact. However, what is indisputable is that this passage is a variant. 
with versions of Mark's Gospel having at least five to nine other endings, depending on how they are being counted, including no ending at all. There are at least three extant manuscripts that omit any verses in Mark after verse 8. We will get to that in a moment. What I'm trying to lay out in this lesson are the facts. What I'm going to endeavor to do in this series of two lessons is to lay out the facts about this matter as objectively as I can, giving both textual evidence for and against the common ending of Mark. We will examine the matter from the basis of textual evidence, considering the witness of ancient manuscripts that we have, and looking at both the internal and external evidence for the text. I will endeavor in this to keep my own opinion out of the matter until the end, and I will try to lay out my own opinion about the ending of Mark's Gospel then. What I'm going to seek to do currently is to give a thorough treatment of the issues involved in what is a complex and for many an understandably upsetting issue. I also will make it clear that my goal here, above all things, is to affirm and remain faithful to the reality of the Bible and all of the Bible is the inherent inspired Word of God. The scriptures are what Paul describes of them in 2 Timothy 3.16-17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. There may be some who might ask, why cover a topic like this? Why do we need to delve into this issue, or why does it really matter? I don't think there is anyone here who would raise these objections. I believe that we are a people who are committed to the principle of sola scriptura, that of scripture alone. We love the word of God. And we are also a people that love truth. And I think the simple answer, first and foremost, is that as Christians, we are called to be a people that love the truth. That means that we should not be afraid of the truth, but seek it wholeheartedly wherever it goes. Second, we are a people who should be convinced in the inerrancy and preservation of the Word of God. God has safeguarded His Word. His Word is inerrant. His Word is infallible. It is a binding upon the consciences of men. Therefore, if God is truly sovereign over the universe and all that is contained therein, He is more than capable of ensuring that His Word, which is binding on the hearts of men, has come to us complete. Third, I think it is important that we talk about these issues precisely because if we don't talk about them, rest assured, there is unbelievers who are. There are influential and scholarly men who know the information well and have weaponized it as an attack upon the reliability and by extension the authority of the Word of God. The target primarily of these attacks is actually probably not most of the people in this room. It is primarily the people, or really it's primarily your children. I know there are a lot of teenagers in this church, and that number is growing as days go by. And I know there's a lot of, of young children that are growing up and also that will soon be going off to college, many of them. And when you're sending your, your children to institutions of higher education, these are some of the arguments they are going to be assaulted with out there. There are several unbelieving professors and others out there who are more than happy to throw this at the young man or woman going into a college campus to assault their faith. If they are not prepared for this, this will rock their world. 
If they don't hear these things here, they will certainly hear them out there, potentially to their detriment. With all of this being considered, let us then move on to consider the text itself. So the longer ending of Mark's gospel is one of two major textual variants in the New Testament. The other being what's called the Pricope Adultery, or the story of the woman caught in adultery, found in the Gospel of John. So if we look at the actual text itself, I'll go ahead and briefly read Mark chapter 6, or chapter 16, beginning at verse 9, and then running through the end of the chapter at verse 20. It says, Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will, not, will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will be no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. As we mentioned, there are potentially several endings to the Gospel of Mark, this that we've read being only one. The number of possible endings can vary depending on who you ask, with the number being as little as five or as many as nine potential endings, depending on how you divide the endings up. I'm going to argue there are five potential endings here. There is, of course, the traditional endings that we've read in verses 9 through 20, which is commonly referred to as the long ending of Mark. The long ending is the majority reading, and that is overwhelmingly represented in the existing manuscripts that we have. There are 1,653 manuscripts that do have the long ending. Depending on the figures, 95 to 99.8% of Greek manuscripts do have the long ending. There are also about 1,000 existing Greek lectionaries that also contain samplings of the long ending of Mark. Now, a lectionary is a collection of passages of scripture selected to coincide with dates on the ecclesiastical calendar. With that being said, there is also clear evidence that it was well understood that the origin of this particular ending was questionable. We have several medieval copies of the Greek New Testament that place asterisks at this passage, indicating that they understood that these passages were not the only reading and that their authenticity was questionable. Then there are also a number of older Greek manuscripts, about 12 in number, that also place some sort of note on these verses, 
indicating that the reading was questionable and that there were other texts that had different readings. The reason that we refer to the, this as the long ending is because there is, in fact, another intermediate ending. The ending of the Gospel of Mark, which reads as follows. And I meant to actually have a handout with all of these written on it, and unfortunately for the sake of time I was not able to get to that. I will try to have that next week when I continue this, but it reads as follows. And all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterwards, Jesus himself sent out through them, from east to west, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. We have only one manuscript that has this ending that we have today, which is called Codex Babiensis. Babiensis is an important work as it represents the oldest surviving Latin copy of the New Testament, being written in the late 4th and early 5th centuries. The text represents the vein of Latin copies of the New Testament that circulated in the centuries before Jerome created the Latin Vulgate. However, through this though this text is only represented today by one manuscript, we know this reading was at least moderately circulated in North Africa, as it is cited by the church father Cyprian of Carthage in the 3rd century as a reading that he was aware of at that time. Then there are the manuscripts that end at verse 8. This is called the short ending of Mark's Gospel. There are three copies of the New Testament that do not include any verses in Matthew, or I should say Mark, after verse 8. Those manuscripts are Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, and a manuscript referred to as manuscript number 304. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus are both 4th century documents of the New Testament. Manuscript 304 is a 12th century document. It contains Matthew and Mark alongside commentary notes. These readings are isolated, but particularly in the case of Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, they represent significant witnesses in our understanding of the text of Mark. It must be also noted that this is not a simple omission on the part of these documents alone. We have the testimony of two church fathers, Eusebius and Jerome, who both testified that which they were aware of, the manuscripts they had of the long ending of Mark, most of the manuscripts available to them did not have that ending. For one, we can consider the words of Eusebius, who states, The accurate copies conclude the story according to Mark in the words of the young man seen by the women and saying to them, Do not be afraid. You seek Jesus, for they were afraid. For the end is here in nearly all of the copies of Mark. Jerome, in addressing a series of questions from a lady named Hedeba, addresses the contradiction in Mark as to whether Jesus arose in the morning or in the evening. In answering the question, Jerome makes a passing but nonetheless important statement. Either we do not accept the testimony of Mark, because this final portion is not contained in most of the Gospels that bear his name, almost all the Greek codices lacking it, or else must affirm that Matthew and Mark have both told the truth, that our Lord rose on the evening of the Sabbath, and that he was seen by Mary Magdalene in the morning of the first day of the following week. It should also be noted that in addition to the Greek manuscripts, a significant number of Coptic, Syriac, and Armenian manuscripts, some dating as early as the 4th century, also 
end at verse 8. There is also a reading of Mark that includes verses 9 through 20, but adds an additional length of text after verse 14. Now that particular text, no one really considers credible, so I'm not really going to go into that one for the sake of time. And then there are also certain texts of the, of the Gospel of Mark that include both. So you would have the intermediate ending and the long ending tacked on to the short ending. So in other words, you have verse 8, and then you have the intermediate ending, and then you have verses 9 through 20 after that. This is a short synopsis of the issues at hand. And all of this is really to say that the textual history of the ending of Mark's gospel is a rather complex one. Now, of course, it sounds really concerning that there could be anywhere from five to nine possible endings to the gospel of Mark. And we might be tempted to ask the question, how can we have any hope of knowing the answer? But the fact is, while there are five possible endings of Mark, there are in fact only two endings that are viable as being original to the text. What I mean by viable, I'm saying those are, there are only two possibilities that actually have any real chance of being original to the Gospel of Mark. The only two that have any viability are the long and the short endings of Mark. The others simply do not have textual basis to support them being original to Mark. A great deal of believing scholarship has gone into this issue. In truth, we have thousands of years of scholarship that has gone into this particular issue. This is not something new or novel. This is not a recent development. This has been known by the Christian community going back as far as the Church Fathers. The fifth example of manuscripts I gave, where we have the long and the short endings present together, are early examples of that scholarship. These scribes who made these manuscripts knew that there were manuscripts floating around in their day with these different endings to Mark's gospel. And so they took great care to copy them down in order to retain them. There's a certain myth, I think, that gets passed around by unbelievers and skeptics, that there has been a great deal of confusion and loss over the course of the centuries of transmission of the New Testament. I mean, you get the idea, skeptics, skeptics often imagine the transmission of the New Testament as something like the telephone game. I'm sure you all know what the telephone game is, right? You know, you've you got a bunch of people sitting around the campfire. One person says something into someone's ear, and they say something to the next person's ear, and to the next person. By the time you get all the way around the campfire, is it, does it sound the same? It doesn't. It's something completely and totally different. And that's, generally speaking, when you're talking about how skeptics view the transmission of the Old or the New Testament... They look at it as the telephone game. You know, it's just this transmission line, and by the time you get to the end, you have no idea what it actually says. And we can show absolutely and irrefutably by the evidence that we have and by the text that we have available to this day that that is not how the New Testament was transmitted. It simply is not, and anyone who attempts to say that or to contend that is simply being dishonest and is lying and does not, or they do not know the issues. Because the reality is that one of the most well-attested, well-documented, and one of the most well-preserved documents in all of human history is the New Testament. The volume of texts we have for the New Testament, 
both texts that are in terms of number and in terms of how early they are to the original is astounding. With over 2,000 original <coughs> Greek texts available. And, of course, some of those are full-size books, such as texts like Vaticanus or Sinaiticus, but some of them are as small as very tiny snippets on a piece of papyri, such as, for example, P52, which is from the Gospel of John. And we also have to consider that we have so many that are from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Such a vast volume of texts from that period of time. Now, understand something. Most of the books that we have from antiquity, we have a thousand years or more between when those were written down and when we actually receive the text or have a written copy available to us. That's the case with the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer. There's almost a thousand years of transmission that takes place before we actually have in the historical record a copy available to us that we can look to and have some understanding of what Homer wrote. Now, take for example, we have the example of P52, which is one that um, I learned by way of um, James White. And James White, in terms of his knowledge and ability and help in regards to these issues, is something that I have relied on in a great deal over the years and has helped me in dealing with these in my own personal life because I'll admit I was one of those when I mentioned to you before the idea of those kids going off to college and dealing with these sort of things that's not a theory because that was me you know at 19 20 years old going to college not knowing these things not being prepared for these things by my church my church taught me that the King James Bible was the only was the only true Bible and it was infallible and it was perfect and it was complete. And in that sense, they were putting more faith in a translation than in the actual textual basis upon which that translation stood. And so we did not talk about these things. These things were not discussed. And so ultimately, I learned these things not from Christian sources. Rather, I learned these things from unbelieving sources. And once that happened, that mindset I had created, that view I had in my mind of what the scripture was, was completely cut down. And the massive crisis of faith that that created in my life was astounding. I mean, I was reeling at that point in my life. It was an incredibly difficult time to work through. And it almost led to a point where I asked myself, could I even be a Christian at all? Because of, can I really actually trust the reliability of the text that I have? So these issues are important issues. I, I say that as an example to simply say these are important things, and we need to get these, this information out there, and this is stuff that needs to be talked about. I know these things are not the most exciting thing to talk about, and that's one thing I'm just going to put out there. Things like Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and Bobbyensis and all these different things. It all sounds really you know, foreign and dry and boring, and I get that. And you know, I'm trying to make it as... as pleasant to deal with as I can, but I hope at least I can convey a passion and understanding that, that I do really care about this issue. Um, this is something that I consider radically, vitally important, not necessarily even for the people in this room, although possibly for the people in this room. You know, I'm thinking largely in my mindset, I'm thinking about your children 
And I'm thinking about the fact that there's a lot of children in this church that may be going to have gone to college are the world and be opposed to these. They'll have faced these and have to be an answer. As an answer, the hand provided to an unbelieving world who puts this out as an example of their skepticism. So returning to the text, I'm going to simply say the argument that the transmission of the New Testament was something like the telephone game, we know that's not true. We simply know that that is not the case. The argument comes that we do not have any idea what the original document said because it has all been corrupted. And again, that is patently untrue. And modern textual evidence, as more and more ancient manuscripts are found, has borne that fact out. The scribes that transmitted the text to us were very careful and diligent in their task. They believed that the work they were doing was sacred work. And they went about that task with the care and diligence one would expect. These ancient scribes were, most of the time, more than likely to add text as they went, rather than lose text. If a scribe ran across something, even if it was something like a marginal note, and was unsure about its origin, they were likely to add it out of an abundance of caution. A solid example of this is 1 John 5.7, what is commonly referred to as the comma Johannium or the Johannan comma. 1 John 5.7 reads as follows, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Now that's a common verse that is quoted. But the reality of the situation is with the comma Johannium, it is an interpolated text. What I mean by that is it was added in at a later date. It is found in only a few Greek texts, none of which are ancient. The oldest Greek manuscript that contains it is from the 14th century. The text has been, I mean, this text has a much older history in the Latin text, but it is unknown in the original Greek text. It almost certainly is a scribal note, and we can tell this because it shares the same form as the verse that follows us, 1 John 5.8. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Likely in the early centuries of the church, a scribe or scholar placed that note into the text, and later scribes, out of an abundance of caution, kept in their own copy manuscripts as well, this interpolated verse. We know in the case of the Gospel of Mark that that is what has occurred in the majority of cases with the alternate endings of Mark. If we take the example of the one that was added in at verse 14, what's commonly referred to as the Freer Logion, which is found in Codex Washingtonianus, it is absolutely not original. Jerome mentions it, so we know that the reading of the Freologian existed in some manuscripts in the 4th century, but we have no corroboration of its existence prior to that. And even Jerome pointed out that it was only in a few manuscripts, and we only have one copy today. On top of that, there are a number of lexical differences between the words and preachings of the Freologian and the rest of the text. There are several word choices that are found nowhere else in Mark. And there are even examples of words and phrases used nowhere else at all in the New Testament. So, in my opinion, that particular ending, which would be ending number four, cannot be possible. It is not something that was original to the New Testament. 
We could also say the same thing for the intermediate ending of Mark. The oldest and only standalone copy of the intermediate ending is the Latin Codex Babiensis. Babiensis itself is a late 4th century document, but we know the tradition of this reading goes back as far as a century earlier. And as we have mentioned before, there are some texts that include the long and the intermediate endings of Mark in the same text, usually with the accompanying critical notes. However, the only example, standalone example of the intermediate ending is Babiensis. On top of this, the internal textual evidence corroborates that this was not the original text. For when we can look at back to uh, Mark 16.8, which says, And they went out quickly, and fled from the sepulchre. For they trembled, and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. In the case of the text with the intermediate ending, the text immediately follows after that, and it says, And all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. So the intermediate ending directly contradicts the prior verse, and makes a very abrupt and clunky transition. On top of that, there are again word choices and phrasing not found anywhere else in Mark. There is the final phrase, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. The verbiage and phrasing in this passage is utterly foreign to anything else in the New Testament, even in the Pauline epistles. It is likely the text was placed onto a copy of Mark that ended at verse 8 because of how abrupt the gospel ends. And this is almost certainly not original. As such, with those thrown out, we really only have two options for the ending of Mark's gospel because we know the ones that have the intermediate and the long ending together they cannot possibly be original. So therefore, there's basically two options in this regard. You have the short ending, where the Gospel of Mark ends at verse 8, and then you have the long ending, which ends at verse 20. So then comes the question, how do we actually figure out which one of those is the original to the text? And I'm going to try to break down the arguments for that next week. I don't for the sake of time, I don't really want to go into that in great detail. You know, one thing I would say about this, a, a lot of this I would also point out is, of course, as I would recognize, very dry. <laughs> it's something that's very difficult to get through, and it's something that's oftentimes, a lot of, in a lot of cases, hard to understand. Um, but I think it's something, again, that is important for us to look at. And I also want to make sure that the resources that I'm looking at as I present this information is also available to you because, again, I want you also to look at these things. I mean, this is something that, again, I think is important. I think it's important that we know this. And there are a number of resources that I've looked at in the course of this study to try to get a better understanding of this topic, and I would commend those to you as well. Um, online, there's available a number of resources that uh, go into this topic in greater detail, if you wish. Uh, there's Michael W. Holmes. He wrote a, um, an article for the Bible Review called To Be Continued. Uh, there's also Jerome's Letter 120 to Hedeba, which is particularly related to this text. If you want to see 
an actual written argument for the long ending, indicating there are believing scholars who have written credible, and I would say well-written arguments for the longer ending of Mark. Now, I guess I should probably just go ahead and give full disclosure in regards to my own opinion. I personally do not believe that the long ending of Mark, that's verses 6 or chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, are actually original to the text of Mark. Um, I would actually argue that the original ending was verse 8. Now, there's some argument with regards to verse 8 about, you know, if we actually end it there, what does that mean for the text of Scripture? And I don't think it really actually means a lot. Some people would actually would argue that means that the text, that Mark couldn't finish it, and I don't believe that's actually true. My argumentation is actually in arguing that verse 8 is the end. And again, reading verse 8, it says, So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I actually believe that that is the ending, and the reason I believe that is because I hold to a very early view of Mark, meaning that I believe that Mark was probably written sometime within the first 30 years of the church. And in being written in that time period, it was actually handled and passed around by people who were actually eyewitnesses of the events of the Gospel of Mark. And as such, when they went and carried the Gospel of Mark, they could write, or they could actually carry the Gospel of Mark, read it to the people they were evangelizing, and then when they got to verse 8, they could then begin their own personal testimony about their eyewitnessing, their actual witnessing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's actually my argument for why the Gospel of Mark would end at chapter 6, verse 8. But there are actually very reliable and credible arguments to the contrary. And I would say this, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this issue, especially when it comes to whether it's the long ending or the short ending. Because the reason we've kept it there is that same, the same reason it was there in the manuscripts throughout the centuries, out of an abundance of caution. Because the reality of the situation is, it is there, it is present, it's early. We know it was testified as early as the 2nd century. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, definitely quoted from the long ending of Mark, and that was in the 2nd century. So he viewed it as the holy text of Scripture. And so as such, again, as I put this stuff out there, as I give you my own opinion on this subject, I do also want to be careful in there because, again, I want to also exhibit some caution because... Again, there's there's some room there. There is some room to say that maybe it is actually the inspired text. Maybe it is actually part of the canon of Scripture. And if you want to look at a case for the longer ending of Mark, you can find that um, with uh, James Snap Jr. wrote one uh, for the Text and Canon Institute, Institute. You can find that one online as well. Another great resource in regards to this is a conversation Dan Wallace had with the Reason and Theology podcast, which is available on YouTube. There's also um, James White covered this uh, topic as well in an episode of The Dividing Line uh, that was uh, dated to February 22nd, 2018. And also James White covers this issue as well in the King James Only Controversy, which is a book that some of you probably read, some of you probably looked at as well. 
but and it's a one I would commend to you as really good work. But um, you know, he also covers that issue in some detail as well. I did want to try to end as quick as I can for the sake of having any time for questions, or maybe more appropriately, comments in case somebody you know disagrees with what I said and wants to you know read me out, which I'm okay with that as well. I R E N A U S. One of the concerns about Irenaeus, according to some who certainly would not agree with us doctrinally, is that his view of man's nature. Mm-hmm. was not really discussed much except in terms of uh, the freedom of the will mm-hmm. in against heresies. And that's what the, to, to your point early in the, in the study today um, concerning uh, being manipulated or questionable things being mm-hmm. put forth when young people go off to uh, higher education uh, they're going to con- be confronted with a lot more than just whether or not Mark's ending is the long or the, or the short version. Absolutely. Uh, a lot more, even within the ranks of uh, cultural Christianity, we'll call it, um, whereby people will challenge what you espouse and have been taught growing up, and you really need to learn how to understand what your position is, what your convictions are, so that you can stand on them, which inevitably means that we have to understand the opposing views. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, we will be blown about by every wind of doctrine. Right. That's, just, that's just the reality. I can speak concerning my own experience uh, as, as a young believer and then even as a seasoned believer and even now. Uh, this particular book to which I'm referring, written, uh, it's a practical systematic theology written by a man who is currently, had been a missionary for over 20 years in Ukraine, and uh, he's espousing certain certain doctrines that, and he's pointing to early church fathers, the patristic church fathers, uh, as his source. Well, the problem with the argument, from my perspective, is this. Scripture precedes the early church fathers. Oh, absolutely. And a scripture is in opposition to what he's saying based upon patristic church fathers, who's right. This is where sola scriptura comes into play. I agree. That's where the rubber hits. hits So there's dangers lurking for us around every corner. Right. I I don't mean this to mean that this is the only issue out there because there's absolutely... Certainly... There's absolutely tons, you know, this is, but I think this is the one that we are faced with looking at right now as we are trying to bring the gospel of Mark to a close. Yeah, um, and I'm, just, I'm just shining a light on the idea that we really can be uh, derailed at many junctures, not just this time. Absolutely. And did you have something?
major church doctrines described out of nine through twenty that you know it, that are unique there. That well, if we don't have that, well, we're missing something. You know, we don't understand uh, the, the the Trinity. We don't right um, understand. Christ's eternality. This or something. Uh, uh, so I guess I'm not saying I, I think the the value of the discussion is that a lot of it, like trying to come to a view of reliability of mm -hmm. the original manuscripts, but um, but I don't think it like like you mentioned. I don't think it's If the question is, is there, and, and that's a good point, if the question is, is there any sort of doctrine, any point of Christian doctrine that hinges upon the long ending mark? Absolutely not. Um, the long ending mark, at least from what I can see there, it, it does seem to bring together different elements that we find in the other, other, um, other Gospels. Um, so, for example, you have the story of the two men walking together on the way to Emmaus. I think that's briefly covered in passing there. Um, you also have a kind of a brief synopsis of Matthew's uh, of Matthew's Great Commission. So you have a few different things that are sort of also present elsewhere. So no, I think it's important to understand that when we talk about there's two major variants in the New Testament. That is the story of the woman caught in adultery, which is found in the Gospel of John, and also this one right here. Neither of these affects any Christian doctrine whatsoever. I mean, no Christian doctrine hinges upon that, unless you're a Pentecostal. But that's a whole other matter. Um, this Mark's version of the Great Commission has a lot more in it than Matthew's version. And particularly, yeah, the, the, the serpents and the poison. Mm -hmm. that's, but it, it, the comment about baptism is a Including baptism with belief as a prerequisite to salvation. That do not think that that's unique to this text. Whoever believes and is baptized prior to Christ. Yeah, that, and, and that's what caused Luther mm. to hold to the necessity of baptism, where others would have said it was more of a a, a, a response. Luther kind of he, he did not regard a person unbaptized as being tr truly saved. Mm -hmm. uh, and he would argue strongly about the, the faith, yeah, but then he would waffle a bit uh, on that topic. It, the, the com one of the commentaries that I was looking at, um, uh, Craig Evans, from the Word Bible Commentary, which is a good There's not everyone in my love in there. Back, back to your comment. Luke 24 is the significant amount of Mark chapter 16, verse 12 and 13. And then, um, then the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where we have a lot of the others. So, you know, was it a, I mean, I got Greek, I got Greek, Greek manuscripts would say yay, ones that say nay, and the reality is it's, uh, we don't know for sure, but again, not, nothing hinges on it. And I think that's important. There's nothing that falls apart. With, with or without. Not agree. I think that's the fundamental. And again, I don't want to. I don't. 
again, I want to keep it framed in. There are two viable options here, right? And I'm not saying that you have to choose one or the other, all right? And, and especially in, in regards to this, the long ending or the short ending, because there are credible arguments on both sides of that, of that uh, divide. Um, I think the most important thing, because I do want to actually cover some of the arguments for and against, and I'm going to go over that next week. Um, you know, I don't think that this is something we're going to be able to bring to a final conclusion all in one Sunday. But I think the important thing here is just we need to be aware of this. We need to understand where this comes from. We need to understand what the issues are. Um, and I think that's such a critical thing. And, of course, recognizing what, um, you know, what both Andy and Mike have said, which is, which is really important for us to keep in mind. Nothing hinges on this. Nothing, nothing ultimately stands or falls based off of the long ending of Mark, and that's a key thing to keep in mind. We are out of time, so I'm going to go ahead and close this with a word of prayer. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us coming at this time to study your word, Lord. Um, even as we get into what are some some difficult and maybe even in, in some cases some thorny issues, Lord, uh, we just ask that you would allow us grace um, in the midst of it, uh, discernment uh, in the regards to these things, um, knowing these are hard things, and that we'd have um, first and foremost the recognition, the understanding that um, your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that does not change. And that is something that is true regardless of what the what the ultimate answer here is in this regard. We know that your word is, as Paul says, it is God-breathed. It is that which is actually breathed out by you to us. It is as you are speaking to us. It is your word. And Lord, we would just ask that you would allow us to handle it carefully and handle it well, and handling it with an understanding that uh, we are going to look at these things um, with a mind which says we, we do want to consider these things carefully and look at them through the light of truth. We're just thankful most of all for the one who has united us in the truth, which is your son Christ Jesus, who is today our prophet, our priest and king, who is the one who is, who is the embodiment of this word, Lord. For in him dwells all the fullness of Godhead bodily. It is in his precious name we pray. Amen. We should have about 10 minutes, then we can get the regular morning service. You are dismissed.